Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I see the role of the director, like, yes, it's your vision guiding it. And yet you really can't do that without incredible fluidity within the team. If you're not open to the artists that you've hired, you've really limited yourself. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hey, June, how's it going? Isaac, I have to say I'm feeling the hot breath of my book deadline against the back of my neck. So I'm a little bit frantic, but basically... Great. That's me being your book deadline, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, so who did you talk to this week? So the voice we heard at the top of the show belongs to Sean Hader, who won an Oscar last year for her work on CODA, which she wrote and directed. And we talked about that experience and also about Little America, the Apple TV Plus series that she is very involved with. That is great. And so for folks who live under a rock and either did not see or do not remember Coda, what was that film and why was it such a big deal besides it winning Best Picture? So Coda, the title is the acronym for Child of Deaf Adults, is about a deaf family with one hearing member, a teenage girl. And it's about what it means, I guess, to leave home when it feels like your family relies on you. And it featured some really wonderful performances, especially from deaf actors, including Troy Kutzer, who won an Oscar and a whole bunch of other awards for his performance in the film. All right. So what is Little America? Is that like the uh, TV show Little Britain, but ported to the United (laughs) States or what? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances does it have anything to do with Little Britain. It's much better. It is an anthology series of immigration stories. Um, There have been two seasons. The second came out last December. And each episode is based on a true story. It's attracted some really big stars, as well as big name writers and directors, including Sean Hader, who has written and directed episodes and has been the co-showrunner. Huh. Okay. So it strikes me that something that both of these projects have in common is that the stories Sean is telling or shepherding uh, uh, through the creative process of showrunning are ones that really aren't within her own experience or her own identity group even. I mean, she is not deaf and she is not uh, herself an immigrant, right? She's not, but her parents were. So she does have that uh, kind of lived experience as the child of immigrants. But yeah, we talked about that and and how you can and should remain open-minded and hope open-hearted to listening to people that you're collaborating with so that, yes, you're the boss, you're the decision maker, you're writing these stories, but you're constantly consulting, you're constantly listening to people, and you're constantly taking their input. It's really kind of inspirational. Oh, amazing. And so do you have any little extra morsels for our Slate Plus listeners this week? Pues claro que sí. So Sean is the child of immigrants. Her mother is Welsh and her father is Hungarian. And as someone who is fascinated by languages and how and with whom we use them, I was really curious about how that worked in her home growing up, given that those are two Mm. really difficult languages. And her answer really revealed a lot about the kinds of stories she's interested in, I think. Well, that sounds really fascinating. And if you're a Slate Plus subscriber, that'll be waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. 
And if you're not a Slate Plus subscriber, what gives, yo? Go to slate.com slash working plus and you'll get all sorts of goodies. You'll get that wonderful conversation. You'll get bonus segments on shows like the Slate Culture Gab Fest. You'll get whole episodes that no one else gets to listen to from things like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. You'll get full access behind the paywall. I could go on and on and on. And you can get it at slate.com slash working plus. All right. Now let's listen in to June's conversation with filmmaker Sean Hader. Sean Hader, thank you so much for joining us on Working. We're going to talk about Little America, the Apple TV Plus series that you have written for and directed episodes of and been a showrunner for. But it's Oscar season and you're the first reigning Oscar winner that we've ever had as a guest on Working. So I have to ask you just a couple of questions about the little gold guy. Like, what was the biggest surprise that came with taking possession of a statuette? Maybe how crappy my house looked (laughs) once I put an Oscar in it. (laughs) Like, I suddenly became aware. I was like, oh, do people that win Oscars have really, like fancy houses with a beautiful mantle that's just like waiting for an Oscar to be on it. And the Oscar kind of was in my bedroom for a while next to like stacks of like kids toys and Legos. <laughs> and and then I was like, I don't know where to put this guy. So he's moved around a lot. And then I realized if I have him on my desk while I'm writing, it really is a problem because I think you you always want to be in that beginner mentality of I have no idea what I'm doing and But having the Oscar on your desk as you're writing, you know, a terrible scene and you're like, wait, (laughs) you're just staring at me like, you don't deserve me. What are you doing here? So maybe that was the most surprising thing was every, you know, suddenly being aware of how kind of small our life was and and normal our life was. And you kind of, especially with award season, you know, you, you step into this world of fancy gowns and hair and makeup people and being in the limelight. And it was definitely a crash down to earth when you go back to your real life and you realize like, oh, that wasn't me. That was some big, you know, kind of performance. But it's amazing. It really, it's so, that whole journey with Coda really felt like a fairy tale story in such a real way because it was a small movie and you know, it was a movie that couldn't get made for a long time and we made it independently and we shot in 30 days in this really scrappy shoot and we had no distributor. And so even getting into Sundance felt like this huge accomplishment, you know, to finally have the movie come out in the world. And and then winning Sundance, I was like, well, that's it. I'm done. Like all my dreams have come true. I've won Sundance. <laughs> um, and then to have the year that followed was just completely surreal and amazing. It was a total gift. When did you have a sense, okay, this really is going to have the impact that I thought or hoped it would? I definitely felt like we were the kind of 10th invite to the Oscars. You know, it felt like, okay, there's 10 movies. And, you know, it felt like, oh, we're the little indie underdog and we're just happy to be here. And so as the movie began to creep and climb and winning the SAG award and then winning the PGA and the Writers Guild. And suddenly (laughs) it felt like this tiny movie that had all this momentum and it was really amazing. And I think I also had just a wonderful experience of award season because I didn't have any expectations. And I don't know that I will ever be in that position again because of what happened with the film, but I truly, even Oscar night, had no idea. I knew that Troy would win at that point. I was pretty sure that that was going to happen because he'd won so many things. But actually, after Troy won, Steven Spielberg was sitting in front of me at the Oscars and he turned around and looked right at me and he mouthed to me, one out of three. And I was like, what is he saying? And I'm like, oh my God, David, to my husband, I'm like, Steven Spielberg is talking to me. What is he saying? And he said, he said one out of three. And I'm like, what does he mean? And he said, I think he thinks you're going to win all three awards that you guys are up for. 
And I was like, oh, shit. And I'm like, if, St- if Steven Spielberg thinks we're going to win, maybe we're going to win. Oh, God, I have not prepared my speech. And I went to the bathroom and locked myself in a stall for like 20 minutes and practiced my speech because I thought if he thinks we might win, then maybe I might actually win. Um, and thank God he did that because I did. And I, I would have been completely unprepared. At least I had that 20 minutes in the bathroom at the Oscars to to think about what I might want to say. But it's amazing. It's really, and it's just opened up the door. I think as an indie filmmaker, you are so accustomed to the struggle Mm -hmm. of just trying to get people to believe in something that you want to make. And it's such a gift to be in a position now where people are looking to me like, well, what do you want to make? And and it's a hard transition because you're like, well, I've, I don't know. I'm used to the resistance. Right, <laughs> I need right. you to tell me no for me to be sure of myself. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really wonderful, I think, because a lot of the stories I'm drawn to, I think, are difficult stories to make. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of projects like that, <laughs> we're going to talk about Little America. And I'm curious what attracted you to the project. Little America was originally the brainchild of Lee Eisenberg, um, and he is my co-showrunner on the show. And he created the show along with um, Kamel Nanjani and Emily Gordon. And, you know, both of my parents are immigrants, Mm -hmm. um, and they have very different immigrant stories. My dad came from Hungary as a refugee um, escaping the Hungarian Revolution, Um, My mom came from Wales to go to art school, you know, because she felt she couldn't be herself as this little Welsh girl in a small town in Wales. And both were completely valid, deep, interesting immigrant stories. And they're not, you know, and this was a time definitely when I met with Lee on the project, um, it was a time when there was so much anti-immigrant sentiment and we were in the middle of, you know, Trump spouting a lot Mm -hmm. of othering of immigrant groups and demonizing immigrant groups. And and it felt very important in an anthology to represent the breadth and scope of the immigrant experience and to make these stories feel intimate and personal and universal and yet very specific to the people. And so I was I was really intrigued by the project. And I have to say, over the years of working on two seasons of the show, it became even more meaningful because these are based on real people. Yeah. We spend many hours interviewing them and digging into their lives. And, you know, you're almost half journalist, half writer. And it's a beautiful process, I think. Also, these are not like Hollywood people who are used to the limelight and often are not people who've had any significant acknowledgement in their lives. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of normal people who are living their lives. And so to get them to open up and be vulnerable and share intimacies of their lives with us and let let us turn them into a TV show is is a real journey. And so the relationships with the subjects, I think, also became very important to me. I imagine there are particular challenges of show running, making even a show where the only consistent element is a theme rather than a character or a story a series of actors, um, you know, because it's a different set of actors, a different writer and director for every episode. How did you maintain a consistent vibe? What did you say to the writers and the directors to try to achieve that? It's one of the most difficult projects I've ever made in terms of exactly what you're saying when you're making an anthology. And it's not just an anthology. It's an anthology where every episode is a different time period. Often they're period pieces They are a completely new culture. And for a show that prides itself on authenticity, we really want to have everything from the production design to the costumes to the dialect and the language. And casting is incredibly difficult on this show because they're based on real people. And oftentimes you're really looking for someone who is so specific that this is not a job where a casting director sends you a list of, well, here are are the, you know, 40 Somali actors that are working today that could all be up for this role. And so it's 
an incredible challenge for all of our department heads yeah, yeah. because it's like making eight movies right. and then you're making them on an episodic television schedule. So you've got no time in between, you know, and suddenly you're building a market in Afghanistan and then the next episode you are trying to represent Orthodox Hasidic culture in Borough Park, Brooklyn, and a Belizean woman within that culture. So it's really incredibly challenging. And in terms of tone, you know, I think with our writers, there's an intimacy and a humanity to the show um, and an attention to detail, I think, which is probably the unifying themes of the show in a sense, like the balance of humor and emotion. Yeah. Um, because I think we're looking for the stories can be deeply emotional and dramatic. And at the same time, there's often real absurdity within the stories and humor within the stories. And I think it's interesting for me in the process, how the incredible specificity of the show can really create this universal feeling to the stories. Yeah. And we found that in our writer's room a lot. You know, I remember um, we were working on first season, the Nigerian episode, which is about this Nigerian man who comes and wants to kind of dress like a cowboy and and embraces cowboy culture. And we were in the writer's room and I was talking about, you know, the episode was set in the 80s. And I was remembering that in the 80s, when I was a kid, my mom communicating with my grandparents in Wales, they would send cassette tapes back and forth because long distance phone calls were so expensive. And so my grandparents would just record themselves on cassette, hanging out in their kitchen, having conversations and send them to my mom. And then she would make recordings and send the cassette tapes back to my grandparents. And so a lot of my experience growing up of my grandparents was listening to their voices on cassette tape. Well, I said this in the writer's room and Mfaniso Dofia, who was writing that episode, who, you know, her family's Nigerian. She said, oh, my family did that too. And the cassette tapes became this magical realism element of that episode where every time he listened to cassette tapes of his family, they would appear in his space. Mm -hmm. And so we found connections like that in the writer's room. And a lot of our writers were either immigrants themselves or children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there was a lot of kind of personal elements, not only that came from our subjects and from the interviews we did with them, but also from our own lives yeah. and our own stories. Yeah. It's always really striking to me. I actually have just returned to Britain a, a few months ago, but I lived in the States for 40 years as an immigrant. And I was always kind of surprised by how many of my colleagues, how many of my friends, if they weren't immigrants themselves, their parents were, or their husband's parents were. Like, most Americans or many Americans are just not that far from, even now in the 21st century, from an an immigrant parent or an immigrant family member. It's really striking. And, you know, especially, I guess, for white people, we just don't really think of it or we deny it or something. But it's really a strong presence in, in people's lives. Well, and also the difference, I think, for white immigrants, actually. I mean, I think that was something that we were thinking about and exploring on our show. And the first season, you know, the story of Sylvianne, who, which was the episode that I wrote right. and directed, yeah. you know, because it's this woman who comes to a silent retreat and she's a pretty white blonde lady, in a way her immigrant identity is completely erased yeah. because without language there's no barrier to anyone accepting her or othering her or thinking that she is, you know, not one of them. Mm -hmm. And that was something interesting to sort of explore and talk about. For sure. Let's talk about that episode, The Silence. As you said, it's set in a silent retreat. There are no words for the first, I don't know, 30 minutes, the first 95% of the episode. You know, I could make a joke about your per word rate for that writing gig. You know? <laughs> um, but I would love to know what was hard and what was easy about writing of that episode. I mean, it wasn't easy because you didn't have to write very many words, right? Well, I wrote a lot of words because uh, it was all looks and moments. and. Um, but the funny part of that episode was that when I wrote it originally, 
at silent retreats, generally they do these kind of Dharma talks where whoever the leader is will will speak, mm. you know, for sections out of the day. And Zachary Quinto is a very old friend of mine. We went to college together oh and well. he's one of my best friends. I've known him since I was 18. And I just kept thinking about him as I was writing the episode and I called him and said, will you come and play this guru of this silent <laughs> retreat? And I think he almost did it as a favor to me. I think he, you know, he liked the show, but it was also like, okay, I'll come and do this thing. And he had these like beautiful speeches all about, you know, kind of Buddhist philosophy. And, and of course, when we were in the editing room, it became really clear after Lee and I watched the first cut. And I think it was Lee who said, I think we need complete silence for, you know, almost all of the episode. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to cut all of Zach's lines. And then I'm going to have to call him and tell him that I've crafted a performance (laughs) out of all of the moments in between the lines where he wasn't talking and, you know, completely crafted a new performance. And it was so funny to call him and be like, hey, you know, I've cut every one of your lines. Um, And I think he was really happy when he saw the show, but it was definitely a funny moment to reel your friend in with all of this <laughs> incredible dialogue and then and then cut it all in the editing room it's good job um, you, good job you're close friends but hey yes yeah. but also an amazing lesson in post right that you can almost rediscover your yeah. story once you're in the editing room and it became really clear that forcing the audience to live in the silence with your lead character was as important as watching her live in it yeah We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Sean Hader after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, listeners. Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to say really quick, thank you so much for listening to this show. Uh, if you don't subscribe to this show and you're enjoying this episode, why don't you go ahead and press that handy-dandy subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using, and that way you'll never miss an episode. If you do enjoy the show, we'd love it if you'd rate it or leave a review. There's lots of different ways to do that depending on which app you use. And if you've already done that, well, there's not that much else you could do. So thank you so much. Uh, Also, though, we would love to hear from you. We take listener questions. We take them very seriously. And we actually build whole episodes around them for our sidekick show, Working Overtime. So write us at working at slate.com or leave us a listener voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And we will feature your communiques on this program. Now let's return to June's conversation with filmmaker Sean Hader. You mentioned you have Zachary Quinto and you kind of cuss his lines. Um, the episode that you wrote in season two, Mr. Song, um, which, you know, it tells the story of the relationship between a family who've come to Detroit from South Korea. The mother of the family runs a hat shop, which is popular with women from a black church, in part because of a relationship between the son of the Korea- South Korean family and a gospel radio DJ 
played by none other than Felicia Rashad. And so, you know, one of the things I just wondered about that episode is like just the depth of talent. You've got Felicia Rashad. The director is Deepa Mehta, you know, one of my favorite directors of all time who also did other episodes on the series. Uh, Mama Song is played by Lee Jong-un, who has been in a bunch of Bong Joon-ho's movies. You know, just like the depth of talent. I mean, that's without talking about you and Alan Yang and Jenny Zhang, who were involved with the writing. Like, I don't want to say, how do you get those people to be involved? Because that kind of disses the show in a way I don't mean to. But like, what is your appeal to get these amazing actors involved in what isn't like a big show, you know, by any kind of objective test, you know? I think people are very moved by the mission of the show. And anyone who watches it feels drawn to do it. I think, you know, for that episode in particular... Martha Jean Steinberg was a Martha Jean the Queen, mm-hmm. you know, who that character is based on the real life person. And she is a complete icon in Detroit. And anyone who sort of is familiar with Detroit at that time is like, she's, you know, she was mad that Aretha Franklin was, you know, called the Queen of Soul because she was the Queen first <laughs> in Detroit. Um, So I just, we needed someone who felt that they could capture like that larger than life quality. And she's so specific and Felicia just embraced, you know, really listened to all of her sermons and listened to her radio show and just spent a lot of time digging deep. And so it is wonderful that the show attracts, you know, names. I also love that there are so many discoveries on the show. There are actors most of our lead actors you've never seen yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. And that is incredible, I think, in the fact that they're huge stars when you watch them. You're like, these people are so charismatic. And, you know, I remember first season actors saying, like, you know, I've always been like a taxi driver or yeah. a terrorist on Homeland. And now I get to... um you know, carry a bag of groceries and make jokes with my family. Like Mm -hmm. there's a kind of humanizing and there's a, I think for a lot of these actors who have worked for a long time in bit parts and are actually brilliant actors that have never had the chance to be front and center in their own show. That's the most exciting part of the series to me. Yeah. Um, when you discover pieces of talent and you think, well, the world needs to know this person and now they get to. Yeah. And that's just really cool. Yeah. Um, maybe a, a sort of a trivial question, but in Mr. Song, you had a collaborator for the story by credit, Jenny Zhang, and another one, Alan Yang, for the teleplay. Like, how does that work? What's Because there's a lot of collaboration in television, but like, that's a lot in the in the credits there. Well, I think, you know, our writer's room is very collaborative. So in a way, we're all in the writer's room and we're all working on every episode. And so in a way, you know, for every episode, I would say that all of our writers are contributing to each episode. And then someone's name ends up on that episode at the end, who is the, you know, lead writer on the episode. Mm -hmm. But in a way, everyone has had their hands on every episode And especially on this show, it really does take a village. You know, it's, um, you are taking these interviews of people's lives. And a lot of times I think the subject doesn't even know, and we don't know when we start what the story is. Mm. We just know that there's something intriguing, right? And with Luke Song in particular, it was like, oh, here's this guy. He made this Korean man made Aretha Franklin's hat that she wore at Obama's inauguration, that famous bow hat with the rhinestones that everyone remembers because it became an internet sensation and spawned memes and all these things. And you go, well, that's interesting. Who's that guy, right? But you don't know what story is there. Mm -hmm. You just start talking to Luke. And through conversations with Luke, you know, it came out that, like, he actually didn't want to, you know, he sort of resented the hat shop because he was this shop kid and he had to work in the hat shop, but he wanted to be a New York artist and wanted to put his stamp on the world. And so the more that I talked to him, 
the more it became clear that this was a journey, it was almost like a Siddhartha type journey of, you know, someone going out in the world and, and trying this and trying that and trying to find who they are and ending up at home, mm-hmm. um, doing exactly what his mother did. And in the process, realizing that his mother is an artist mm-hmm. and forcing her to see that as well. But we didn't know that when we started. So it's a real process and you're sort of through interviews and you interview the subjects and then you read through their transcripts and then you talk about it as a writer's room and you sort of come up with like, oh, maybe the episode could be this. And then you go back and you re-interview them with those ideas in mind. And then the room kind of talks about that. And so, you know, it's a lot of voices that are involved in every episode. Yeah. Well, that brings me to another question that, or just really a thing I was wondering about, because as we said, there's a high degree of difficulty in pretty much all of the departments of Little America, because they involve, in many cases, not every single one, but in many slash most cases, they involve multilingual dialogue. And not only that, but like culturally specific ways of communicating and behaving. Can you talk about those challenges and how you approach them? Obviously, that's also something that you dealt with with CODA. I think the thing that I've realized both through CODA and through Little America is the idea that one consultant can speak to a culture is really misguided. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lesson that I learned in both cases where, you know, I am not a part of the deaf community. I, you know, am coming in as an outsider Mm -hmm. and you really have to know what you don't know. And then you have to put kind of the support in place and really put a team together to, dig in and create the specificity and authenticity that you need to tell a story like this. So on Little America, all of our writers have consultants that are available to them from the beginning. So they have the real life subject Mm -hmm. that they are talking with and checking in with. Then we have cultural consultants and often there are many, you know, so on the episode that, um, you know, Mfaniso, who wrote the Nigerian episode first season, and she's Nigerian, was writing the Belizean episode this season. Mm-hmm. So she had a Belizean consultant. She also had a Hasidic Orthodox Jewish consultant who was helping her deal with specificities for that community. Um, so those people were available when we were writing. Then we go into the production phase our actors come on board and our actors are often of the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're very specific about casting as well, where we are really trying to find actors that even regionally share often the same region as the character. And then the actors will often look at, you know, you, you hire a translator and you do the translation of the script and then you bring on, say, your Somali actor And they're like, well, I wouldn't say it like that. That's a formal way to say it. This is how I would say it. And oftentimes you have arguments on set where, you know, you've got multiple actors. And I remember on Luke's song, you know, we had our Korean translator. Then we had a Korean consultant who was, you know, working with us on set with the dialogue. And then we had a read through with our whole cast. And there was a big argument in the cast. You know, well, I would say it like this and I wouldn't (laughs) say it like that. And, you know, we would use this term instead. And so you kind of all work together. So... And that was true on CODA as well. Uh, Like uh. I had two ASL masters. So I had, um, and it was important to have two people because they signed very differently and had kind of a different experience of language and ASL. And then all of my actors brought their own experience. And Mm -hmm. so oftentimes you're having these big collaborative discussions on set about language, right? you know, where everyone's going, well... I wouldn't use that sign, you know, I I would, but maybe my character would, and this is why my character would. And, um, and I love that because as a writer too, it's just a whole different experience of language where you are getting to understand what a turn of a phrase would be in another culture. And, uh, you know, on CODA, especially there are English phrases that would never translate into deaf culture. Mm Mm-hmm. So how a joke works in ASL versus how a joke works in English and really trying to understand. And so I've never had a script be such a living, breathing document before where, you know, normally you write the script and it's pretty much what the actors say. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Coda, the script was almost like this blueprint, but then we went to build the building and we were like, well, this doesn't, (laughs) you know, like, let's go here, let's go here. This is this funny moment. And and they're similar experiences, oh. you know, because you're 
what you're trying to get at is something that feels very real. Yeah. And you're trying to honor not just the culture at the center, but the specificity of the character and or the family Mm -hmm. that you're Mm -hmm. presenting. And so on CODA, there were things that were true of the Rossi family and the way that they signed with each other that were regional to fishermen in Gloucester, Massachusetts. You know, there were local signs that we incorporated, but also just the the family unit yeah. and how this particular family used language with each other. Yeah. Um, and we have that on every episode of Little America as well, where you suddenly go, okay, wait, but this is, you know, what's the class of this person? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what's the, where do they come from? Why would they use this phrase? So it's yeah. just a, it's yeah. a very, I think any project that I'm involved with when I receive a sort of massive heart opening and intellectually opening education um, as I'm involved in unlocking a thing is just really, it's really wonderful. I mean, it's interesting because I think some people would see that as like a, an attack on their authority, but that doesn't seem like that's the opposite of how you, to you, it's an opportunity for improvement. I see the role of the director, like, yes, it's your vision guiding it. And it is on you to synthesize all of the information that you're getting and steer the ship and be kind of ultimately making the choices that make the film. And yet you really can't do that without incredible fluidity within the team. Mm. And if you're not open to the artists that you've hired and put around you, you've really limited yourself. Yeah. You know, writer-directors... They aren't exactly rare, but they're also not necessarily the norm. And I wonder, like, what are the particular challenges of combining those two really big jobs and what are the benefits? I think there are some writer-directors that probably feel, you know, a lot of ownership of the what's on the page, maybe, yeah, yeah. when they get on set. I mm. kind of feel the opposite. And it gives me a lot of freedom. It's almost like I wear my director, my writer hat, and I write the script. And then once I have my director hat on, I'm like, who wrote this piece of shit? (laughs) Let's throw it out. You know, you watch rehearsal, your actors, you know, can't make a scene work. And you're like, well, this scene is crap. Who wrote this scene? (laughs) Um, And you kind of can work it out in the moment. And I, I find that it gives me a lot of freedom to have both skill sets. You know, sometimes... Sometimes maybe it's like you have to unlock the scene. You have to work with your actors to find what's there. Sometimes the scene that you, when you were alone in your room on your laptop, felt brilliant. You get it on its feet on the day in a room and suddenly you go, well, this scene really doesn't work um, or it doesn't give me the thing that I need. Mm -hmm. So in a way to have that ability to rewrite on the fly and go, well, what if you said this? And what if you said this? And yeah. I love that. You know, it's, it's, I think it can be very disorienting for your crew because they're like, wait, what are we shooting? And what am I saying? And you need actors that are, you know, facile and quick on their feet, but it's really wonderful. And then I often, you know, then you get in the editing room and you're like, who directed this crap and who wrote this crap? Throw it all out. You know, now I'm a whole new personality that's, you know, kind of looking at it as raw material. Um, I think oftentimes I overwrite as a writer and then you get on set and an actor is filling a character, filling a moment with so much that you can't anticipate when you're writing a scene that I find most of the time what I'm doing is just taking stuff out. I'm taking out language. I'm taking out lines an actor gives you a look and you go, well, these five lines that I wrote, you just you just said it all with this one look in your eye. Mm-hmm. F- don't say those five lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times I think it's almost like I'm writing, I'm writing to know what the scene is about. And then when I'm directing, because I know what the scene is about, I don't need all that writing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very interesting process. And I keep trying to... I keep trying to use that when I'm writing now where I'm like, remember that you throw all this out <laughs> down the road. But it seems like, you know, it's often there 
for the read in a way. Right. So someone can read the script and really synthesize everything that you're getting at. But filmmaking is a visual medium ultimately. Mm. And a lot can be said mm. on screen um, with the cinema of it that doesn't necessarily need to be in the writing. Yeah. But not every writer has that ability to work as well with the imagery as with the words. I mean, that's an unusual combination. So <laughs> it's great that you have it. I think I also just don't have a lot of sort of, I don't know, maybe a lot of people hang on to this, but I think I still, it is a very beginner mentality. I think when I approach any new project and I was joking about it earlier, but it is the reason I don't like having the Oscar on my desk <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, you never know what you're doing. And you're constantly, if you're not coming into a project, A, with fear, and B, in a state of, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So what is this story asking for? And that's, you know, as you become more experienced, certain parts of the, I don't know what I'm doing change, mm -hmm. because you do know what you're doing. You know, you do know oh, I'd like a 4D lens for this because that's going to give me the specific look that I want. Like that that part of, you know, getting better at your job. But in terms of, I don't know how this scene works until I see it. And if I'm not coming to it with a state of um, openness and discovery, you're going to miss what that particular moment is offering to you. John Hader, thank you so much for visiting with us. Uh, it's really been a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I really love this conversation. Stick around. June and I will talk about collaboration, being open-minded, and all sorts of other things right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. June what a wonderful interview. I loved Sean's hilarious story of her <laughs> dawning realization that she might actually win an Oscar. And I was really struck by this thing she said about wanting her stories to feel both universal and specific. Mm. That's a really tough balance to strike. How do you get to the universal through the particular? Like when I was in graduate school, we talked about this all the time in workshop, right? It's like yeah. by focusing in on the details of the individual's experience, you actually get to the broader, even if that seems paradoxical or something. Right. I have a feeling that you may be thinking about this right now with your own book, which is delving really deeply into a very specific culture during the 20th century. How yeah. are you approaching these questions? Oh, God, it's been an extra big challenge for me because I guess like Anthology TV, it's six different stories. So they're all different. Every chapter of my book is about a different location that's important to lesbian cultural history. And that means I can't go too deep, but I also need to find those little nuggets that will lodge in readers' brains and really grab their attention and capture their curiosity and I guess I've found that as I think about the overall story, there are always a couple of moments that absolutely grab my attention. Like in the chapter I'm currently working on, which is about a particular kind of store, there are three or four institutions that really represent the arc of the history of this kind of store. And in one of them, which has been open for nearly 50 years now, there was one two or three year episode that I became absolutely obsessed with. Like I spent way too much time by any objective measure going down research rabbit holes for this relatively short term event. 
But I guess I also have to trust that that means something. If I mm. think this is important or interesting, maybe that's worth two pages in a <laughs> you know, 50-page chapter. Yeah, absolutely. In the creative writing world, we talk a lot about writing across difference. You know, the, the art of writing characters or experiences that are really pretty far outside your own identity group. And getting the cultural competency to be able to do that is a, is really complex, particularly with this kind of project. You know, one thing that she said that I thought was really interesting is, is you know, they hired a writer from a Nigerian background in part to write an episode about a Nigerian immigrant in the first season. And then that writer is still on staff in the second season, writing across difference for her to a totally different immigrant experience. And I I was really struck by Sean's point that one consultant can't speak to a culture because of course, no culture is monolithic. Identity is a complex thing. It's not just nation of origin. It's not just race. It's class. It's gender. It's skin color. It's, you know, whether your parents were married. I mean, it's all sorts of other things. Things go into forming an identity. No, totally. And I mean, for example, Nigeria, a country I'm a little bit familiar with, an immensely, immensely diverse country, you yes. know, tribally, religiously, regionally. So yeah, it's just is incredibly difficult. And I'm really aware of this because nothing pulls me out of a show more than getting just a tiny detail wrong. If it's a detail that's one of my pet peeves or one of the things I am particularly sensitive about usually. You know, th- this happened to me last night on your behalf, watching an oh. old rerun of Frasier because Daphne is from <gasps> Manchester and Frasier. Mm-hmm. And at one point someone says, oh, is that where the Beatles are from? And she says, no, that's Liverpool. And then they say, oh, what? Who's from Manchester? And she says, nobody. That's why I left. And of oh, course it's God. like, what? Have you not seen 24-hour party people? I mean, come on. <laughs> also, think what's about really all crazy, the great music that's from Manchester. Totally. And the other crazy thing, she does not have a, a northern accent. She's a southerner. But the guy who plays Frasier's father is from the north, you right. know, which is 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 just mind-boggling. Right. The the two things no one learned about John Mahoney until he died was that he was British and gay. Exactly. And but you know, that was also Another interesting thing that Sean Hader mentioned was actors bringing their experience to bear. You know, a Korean actor saying, oh, I wouldn't say it like that, or a deaf actor saying, my character wouldn't use that sign. And only Korean or ASL-speaking viewers are going to benefit from those interventions. Mm-hmm. But in a way, they're the most important and certainly the most sensitive audience for those stories. So it is really important, but also really, really difficult. I know. Okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit at something you just said, and the okay. only re- and it's out of love, which is just <laughs> that I do think that that kind of attention to verisimilitude and realistic detail is something that audiences that even that when they aren't experts, they can actually pick up on mm. and feel a kind of seriousness yeah. of purpose and craftsmanship. Yeah. They will yeah. feel more like they're in good hands the more specific it is. You know, like I think about like um, you know, like the the filmmaker Michael. Mann Right. He's always very particular about the guns and the ammunition being the right thing. You know, like, I don't know shit about guns, but it's like you can just tell watching. It's like this is someone who took the craft of this action sequence seriously or whatever. Yeah. And I suppose it's more that you kind of when there are the things that your antennae are always up about, then you notice them. But actually, you're picking up on 25 things. And the thing that you actually express and complain about is the one of the 25 that you actually, you know, have on the tip of your tongue. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It also seems like a lot of Sean's process comes from a really genuine open-mindedness. You know, she she kept returning to things that felt like she was describing open-mindedness in a bunch of different contexts, whether it's to your collaborators or about other people and what they have to give you and what you have to give them and, and how you can learn from each other or about what you don't know as you enter a project, whether you're a director or writer, actor, whatever. So is open-mindedness something that we can cultivate as creative oh. artists? Do you have a, you know, is there is there a book you've read about 10 steps that we can take weekly <laughs> to be a more open-minded Ooh. person? And, and, and if so, no, that's not a burn. <laughs> you know these things and I don't. I'm actually asking for your wisdom here. How do we get more open-minded, June? I actually want you to tell me, but I have to, before I get to that, I just have to say I really admire that attitude of Sean's because It is hard to tell complicated stories of imperfect people who don't always say or do the right thing. Mm. And so I think the easiest response to anything these days is to just try to shut out the other voices. So being open to other opinions, I think, is extra hard these days. And it's also hard because, look, I've never wanted 
an authoritarian editor or collaborator. But an important part of doing a good job in a decision-making role is to make decisions. You're mm-hmm. the arbiter. You have to listen to everyone in an open-minded, open-hearted way. And then taking that and all the other things you know, which other people probably don't know, make a decision. And I suspect that working on episodic television where you just have to make a lot of decisions quickly every week is good practice for that. But you've got to make decisions. So like this open mindedness, this open heartedness, which is so appealing, so hard. So this is something that requires heart as well as head. But in my experience, that makes it really difficult to learn. So do you have any insight on how you cultivate that? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, it's interesting because I do think it's much easier to talk about how to make decisions. Mm, you know, yeah, there yeah, are a yeah. lot of 10 steps yeah. to being a more decisive person, right? Um, the one thing that I would say is that when you have that immediate almost reflex or reaction to reject mm. something that someone is saying, just start asking them questions instead. That's the one sort of, I think, easy it's not easy, but it's the one really basic thing that I think one Ooh. can do to cultivate a little bit of open-mindedness. Or even when you're watching a movie and you're like, this movie sucks, you know, just like have a moment to be like, okay, what can I learn from from this? Yeah, even if it's yeah. how to not to do it. Or sometimes <laughs> someone will just say something to you and you're like, that suggestion, like, did you even read the thing I wrote? That suggestion doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah. And instead of saying that, particularly to an editor, say right. like, oh, what was the... Uh, where is this note coming from? Or like, I actually don't mm-hmm. understand. Can you explain? Or, yeah, yeah. you know, can you say more about that or whatever? I, I often find, you know, in conversations with friends or something, they might say something that at first I'm like a little offended by or a little <laughs> wounded by or whatever. And then I'm like, wait, can can you say more about that? And then they explain yeah. it. And it has no relationship to the thing that I thought they were saying. Oh, man, that is very wise. Something I'm going to try to do because it's so hard to get over that first. Oh, I got to shut you down here. Right. Well, I got to well, do this. I think part of this is also given the jobs that you've had, you know, for the past 20 years, as opposed to the jobs I've had for the last 20 years, <laughs> you're very much, you know, incentivized to make quick, definite yeah. decisions. And you are incredibly yeah. good at that, having worked for you and, and with you over the years. And being a director and then a writer, you know, you're actually more incentivized to be like, hmm, well, let me, let me think about that and get <laughs> back to you. Let, yeah. me, uh, just, mm, let me just chew on this for a little bit longer. <laughs> Well, we can't chew on this episode any longer, Isaac. That's true. It is it for this week, and we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Working. If you have, subscribe. Then you will never miss another one. And if you want to hear even more of this episode, not to mention bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood, and full access behind the paywall on the Mothership site, subscribe to Slate Plus already. Go to slate.com slash working plus right now. You Just hit pause, go to slate.com slash working plus, and then come back. We'll still be here. All right. Thank you. Huge thanks to Sean Hader and to our brilliant producer Cameron Drews and to Kevin Bendis, who was a great help with this episode. Working will be back next week with Karen Hahn's conversation with award-winning sommelier Miguel de Leon. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.